0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk
1: Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept... She bent over to the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. Mm -hmm. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen.
2: Now, I mentioned the talents and, that God has brought, and one uh, is Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. Um, just to introduce you to him, uh, Sinclair and his wife Dorothy have moved to uh, Dundee, while well, Carnoustie, and we've been absolutely delighted to have them. I got a phone call from somebody who said, I heard, have you got Dr. Ferguson, an American, have you got Dr. Ferguson in your congregation? I said, yes, and they said, what does he do? I said, well, actually, he cleans my glasses. which is true and he did it again tonight he comes in every time and he cleans my glasses I think this is the 21st century equivalent of foot washing Um, we also let him preach and we are so uh, delighted that God has brought Sinclair back to his native land from the United States to bring God's word to us and it's a real joy for us in Dundee just to share in that ministry and for the different churches here to share in that ministry again. So, Sinclair, I welcome you, please.
3: Well, I'm really, uh, my claim to fame is I'm David Robertson's fifth assistant. <laughs> so, you can measure his comments by, by that reality. Uh, it certainly is a, a joy to be with a group of people who have had such unusual experiences uh, in the last few years. Um, I happened to be reading about St. Francis of Assisi during the course of the week, and I think he probably, because he was very disappointed with what happened to the Franciscans even during the course of his life, I'm sure he would rejoice uh, that the friary is now in the hands of people who want to spread the gospel. And uh, there were very strong Christians actually in the Barclays family, and some of them would rejoice in the blessings that Elam Church has had. And when you have the courier accurately quoting (laughs) David Randall, uh, you know that you are living in the last days. (laughs) But uh, since we've been living in the last days since the day of Pentecost, uh, I want you to keep your Bible open at the passage in John chapter 20, or fire up your phone. I see one or two of them. Your iPad. Um, I can't tell you what page number it's on on your Kindle, uh, but I do want to think about these wonderful verses with you for a few minutes this evening. I was listening to the radio in the car on Thursday afternoon and heard a conversation between, I think, the representative of the Humanist Society of Scotland and a representative of the Church of Scotland discussing comments that Prime Minister David Cameron had made about Easter. Um, I will not mention names in order to protect the guilty. Um, The conversation was uh, about the significance of Easter, and sad to say, at least to me, uh, since in a former life I was a minister in the Church of Scotland, the Church of Scotland's representative said that the message of Easter, that we celebrate together, what we are celebrating is the triumph of love over revenge. To tell the truth, I felt slightly ill when I heard that for a variety of reasons. One, because that certainly was not what the Lord Jesus thought. Another, because it certainly wasn't what the apostles taught. The third, that it isn't actually what the confession of the Church of Scotland says. And the fourth, that it's a statement that Confucius could easily have made. And of course, the point of it all was to say, we have these things in common. But the point of Easter is about something absolutely unique. It's not about something we have in common with others. We share much with others. But the Christian gospel's claim is that the resurrection is unique. It's not something shared with other religions. It's not something shared with men and women of goodwill and good faith. It is a single history-transforming event. And I suppose the thing that made me feel somewhat unwell was the thought, how can that be so clear, and yet here is someone who entirely misses the point? And of course, and this is the segue into this passage. It made me think a little about the fact that there is so much about Easter, about the event itself, about that amazing morning and the rest of the day and what followed. There actually is so much that the early disciples didn't quite get. And I think in this passage, this particular passage that we've had read to us this evening, There are also some things in this passage that as Christians we might not actually get. And so I want to look at two things essentially, which is shorthand for a message that has six points. I want to look at the three things that Mary Magdalene didn't quite get. And then I want to look at another three things that as Christians in our Christian tradition, in the fact that many of us have heard this passage read every year in our lives and heard dozens of sermons and gone to many Bible studies on it, another three things that we may not quite get that are so important to what takes place in this amazing event. So, let's look first of all at the way in which Mary struggled to get the point in the garden. In our church here on Sunday evenings, in the last three months, we've been studying the events that took place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 through 3. And it's quite significant, actually, that in John's gospel, there are various reflections of what happened in the Garden of Eden. One of the things I've been saying in these sermons is that the whole of the Bible is, in a sense, a series of footnotes to the promise that's given in Genesis 3.15, that there would be an ongoing struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and a climax in which the seed of the woman, one particular seed of the woman, would have his heel bruised or crushed by the serpent himself. But in the process, he himself would crush the serpent's head. That actually is what we've been singing about the death of death, the overpowering of Satan in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is something very subtle but beautiful in the way the Bible tells the story the first realization of the restoration, the salvation of men and women, and the beginning of the salvation of the very fabric of the cosmos would take place in an environment similar to the environment in which the fall of man originally took place. Medieval theologians who discussed sometimes obscure and uh, points of theology, way beyond what Scripture reveals, often believed that the place of the skull in the New Testament was the place of Adam's skull, the place where Adam had been buried. And so, they believed there was a a marvelous conjunction, symbolic, yes, but profound, in the fact that the very place in which Christ had been crucified and death had died in his resurrection was the place where Adam himself had sinned and Adam himself had come under the curse and become part of the earth which he was supposed to master and transform into a cosmic garden. And here, our Lord Jesus who first faced down the evil one in the wilderness, surrounded by the wild animals, is now, as it were, giving the first evidence of his triumph over Satan and sin and death in the context of a garden. It's almost as though John wants us to understand that what is taking place in this little garden in the environs of Jerusalem is an event so significant that it will lead to and actually guarantees the salvation of Christ's people and the transformation of the cosmos when He comes again in majesty and glory, and brings in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will both dwell and reign. And all of this is actually happening before Mary Magdalene's eyes. And it's interesting that uh, the way in which John tells this story, perhaps actually if you go home tonight and you read this in the first person, if instead of uh, they or she, you put I, you may very well get the impression that John is simply recording here in the third person what he actually heard Mary Magdalene say herself in the first person. It has a, it has a very eyewitness feel about it, a very I was there. You can sense the atmosphere And in particular, one of the things that John seems to bring out here is that you can see the body language. Very important to us, isn't it? We communicate with words. Um, But if we are the female of the species, we find it impossible to communicate without our hands. Um, We communicate with our eyes, by the way we stand. And it's interesting, there are, are, as it were, three elements in Mary's failure to grasp what has happened that have got to do with her body language. We could put it this way, in the light of the resurrection, Mary's body language is all wrong. It's interesting to think about the addendum to that, isn't it? that the resurrection ought to change our body language, ought to make us walk tall instead of drooping, ought to give to our very beings a sense that uh, we triumph in Jesus Christ, that we are able to have poise in the face of panic and adversity. But here she is in the context of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there's something wrong with her eyes. And the angels notice that. They say to her, why are you weeping? The implication is, of course, empty tomb, risen Jesus, scriptures fulfilled, death defeated, sins forgiven, Satan overcome. Everything in which she should have been rejoicing, but her eyes gave it all away. There's actually a very simple lesson here. Why do her eyes give it all away? Because she was trying to understand the empty tomb in terms of what she could see instead of understanding the empty tomb in terms of what Christ's word had promised her. Actually, that's particularly interesting when you think about this garden in the context of the Garden of Eden. This was the fatal mistake that Eve had made long before Mary Magdalene made it. She had understood her life in terms of the way she saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she didn't grasp what God wants all of us to grasp, that believing people never interpret their world or their circumstances by their eyes. They always interpret their world and their circumstances through their ears, not in terms of what they see, but in terms of what God says, that crafts a prescription of clarity and God-centeredness into the way we see everything. And it's interesting, isn't it? In, In most of these resurrection narratives, the same theme keeps on recurring. Why did you not believe my word? Didn't I promise you that I would suffer and die and on the third day rise again? And wasn't this in accordance with the Scriptures? And you remember those two on the road to Emmaus, one of whom may well have been Jesus' uncle, and therefore the other, possibly his aunt. He has to walk them through the Bible from the beginning to the end and say to them, didn't you see this? Why did you not see this? That this was the meaning of the message of the empty tomb. And the answer was that they couldn't see properly because they hadn't heard rightly. There's a tremendous lesson there, I think, for us as Christian people, isn't there? We often try to interpret our own lives and providences and our situation in the light of what we see. And we share Mary Magdalene's mistake and the mistake of the early disciples And only when we begin to see through our ears and look at life through the lenses of Scripture and the power and presence of Jesus Christ in the gospel, do we rightly see the circumstances in which God and His providence has placed us. So, she made the mistake of trying to see through her eyes. And so, she couldn't see clearly because they were filled with tears. But then there was also a problem with her ears, wasn't there? Uh, These angelic figures speak to her, and they uh, ask her why she's crying. She says, they've taken my Lord away. And then she turns around, presumably hearing some sound in the garden. She turns around, and there is Jesus And uh, Jesus asks the same question, woman, why are you crying? And what does the text tell us? She thought it was somebody else. She saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. This is very interesting. You know, someone calls you on your cell phone, you You open up your cell phone, someone calls you on the phone at home. It is an amazing thing that often just by one word you immediately recognize who it is that is speaking to you. And if it's somebody you know and somebody you love, all the more so. So, there seems to be something very remarkable about this. Here, Mary is listening to the voice that she loves so much and she doesn't recognize his accent. No, it was a resurrection accent. Uh, I think if you're a Dundonian in the resurrection, you'll probably sound like a resurrected Dundonian. I I don't think you'll sound like a Cambridge and Eton-educated English person. So, there's something much more going on here, isn't there? And John wants us to and wants us to place this in the context of his gospel. And you see, this is, a, this is a real event in history, but in the gospels, often real events in history are there to illustrate gospel truth. And do you remember one of the most significant things that Jesus had said in the teaching in John's gospel in John chapter 10, where he'd spoken about himself as the good Shepherd? was that the good shepherd calls his sheep by name. And when he calls his sheep by name, they recognize him and follow him. You know, you remember this from childhood. If you're a husband, you still do this. Uh, Someone says something to you, your wife says something to you, and you, you take it in, but it's 30 seconds later before you realize what has been said, because it's something that you either weren't expecting to hear, perhaps you have selective deafness, and it was something you actually didn't want to hear. But there's a, there's a time lag, even in ordinary experience between hearing and recognizing. And the same is true spiritually, isn't it? Um, I've heard people say to me, I never heard the gospel preached until I was 39. And I said, had you gone to church? They say, yes, I went to church. They say, where did you go to church? They went to this church. And I know, unless I have lost all sense of proportion, they heard the gospel time and time and time and time again. But all they heard were noises and not the voice of Jesus Christ. I had a very remarkable experience years ago. I was speaking at a conference in Philadelphia. A young man came up to me to tell me that he had been converted through listening to, in the old days, a tape recording of a, a sermon I'd preached somewhere. And we had a lovely time rejoicing in his conversion. I walked out of the place and uh, a man came up to me and introduced himself to me as his father. I said, You must be so encouraged about the conversion of your son. Oh yes, he said, but did he tell you the whole story? So I told him what he told me. No, no, did he tell you the whole story? I said, Well, what's the whole story? He said, We had a bunch of tapes lying in our laundry room. And our son was far, far away from the Lord, had never apparently put his trust in in Christ. And uh, all unknown to us, one night he came in through the laundry room, picked up one of these tapes, and he listened to that sermon every single night for an entire month. And on the 30th listening, he came to faith in Christ. Now, I foolishly made some remark about sometimes my sermons are a little complicated and uh, but uh, you know what was happening, don't you? He was hearing, but not hearing, just as Jesus says. And here is Mary, and she's hearing, but she's not hearing until, and this is so striking in John's gospel, until he calls her by name. It's actually a beautiful illustration of what happens, isn't it? Um, you, get, you do get called by name. It may be you listen to sermons, and they're out there, and you, you understand them, and you, you check them off. They're good, they're bad, they're indifferent, they're long, they're short, they're interesting, they're boring, and all you're hearing is words. And then, sometimes, it seems out of the blue. You're sitting there, and You're in a crowd, but you know there is only one voice that's in your ears, and the voice of the person who is preaching has has kind of disappeared. He may have an Irish accent, uh, but you've lost all sense of an Irish accent because you're hearing another accent, and you're being called by name. And here marvelously, Mary is being brought out of out of the gloom, the haze spiritually, into the full light and joy and glory of knowing Christ, calling her by name, recognizing him, and of course, that immediately leads to this marvelous response in which she she throws herself at him, and she she holds on to him, and that actually is. The third thing that she doesn't quite grasp. And Jesus says to her, Mary, you can't hold on to me like this. Now, various translations translate these words in different ways. Don't touch me. That can hardly be right in light of what he says to Thomas later on. Put your finger into the holes. Yes, you can touch him. I think just what... uh, Jesus is saying to her, is, Mary, you're not quite there yet. You're holding on to me as though we could go back to the past. You're holding on to me because you want to keep me with you like this, and you are forgetting what I hope the disciples passed on to you, that I am actually going to leave you permanently but I'm going to come again when I send my Spirit. And He will not only be with you, He will dwell in you, and He will transform you, and you will be conscious that you are far nearer to me then than you are now as you cling to me so tightly. And so, he's saying, Mary, this isn't a time to cling to me. This is a time to go and tell others that you've met the risen Christ. And she goes marvelously, made whole as a Christian really, to tell the disciples about the risen Christ. But if you're like me, and you've been to Bible studies on this passage, and heard sermons on this passage, and uh, maybe for all I know preached better sermons than this one from this passage, then you'll know, and even if you just listen, you, you know how easy it is when you're familiar with a passage to kind of, you, you, you know, I remember when I was a little boy listening to children's sermons, as soon as the man began to speak, I would work out what he was going to say. It was always going to be Bible or sin or Jesus or God are the only four answers to the questions, and, and uh, familiar passages, you know, you He's going to say this, and he's going to say this, and he's going to say this. And there are three things here that I think sometimes, maybe just because they've got into the traditional way of understanding these verses, rather have minimized for us their sheer wonder when it comes to our own Christian life. I want to point them out to you. I'll try and do it quite briefly. The first is this. We uh, read these words and uh, she turns to Jesus and she says, Look, supposing him to be the gardener, if you've taken away his body, then tell me where it is and at least we'll make arrangements to get the body back. And mentally we think, ha ha, he hadn't taken the body away. But you know, he had. If she'd she'd understood that same passage, she would realize that uh, he had. John chapter 10. I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it up again. It's one of the fascinating things about the resurrection of Jesus as is true of all the big points in Jesus' life, that all three persons of the Trinity are engaged in that work, in his, in his conception. He's sent by the Father. He comes into the world. He's conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here in His resurrection, He's raised up by The mighty hand of God. He is declared to be the Son of God with power in the resurrection through the Holy Spirit. But it's also true that he had taken the body away. It's it's a great mystery, but it's an indication of something enormously important, that he had himself broken the power of Satan and death. He did it himself by his own power. You remember how Peter puts it on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.24, I think. It was not possible for death to hold him down. Yes, of course, for a couple of days it looked as though death had won. You watch uh, Wimbledon tennis, a good illustration of this. And here is whoever is the number two seed playing the number 159 seed or whatever. And all the way through the first set, people are saying, is this young man going to beat the great one? And it looks as though he may, and they trade shot for shot. But unless you know something more about tennis than I do, you don't understand that what is happening here is that the number hundred and whatever seed is actually exhausting all his resources in the first set. That's why you find these amazing results. Seven-six. Six-love. Six-love. Because it wasn't possible for the poorer player to resist the sheer power and skill and energy of the maestro. And so it was with Jesus. If we can think of death in a kind of personification as sometimes the the Bible does. Just think about the endless stream of men and women and children at whose doors death had knocked, into whose lives death had come, with whom death had wrestled. Not one single one of them had been able to master death. And Now he comes and brings about the death of death and rises again in power and majesty. And you can almost feel Jesus smiling to himself. She's, she's in no fit condition for Jesus to say this to her, but uh, you can almost feel him smiling and saying, Mary, I did take the body away, you know. I did it myself by the power of my holiness and grace. And then there's another thing that I think we sometimes get wrong this beautiful expression that uh, is used here. And uh, it's kind of obvious to those of us who have been studying the first three chapters of Genesis that John, who is so conscious of these Old Testament pictures, is struck by the fact that Mary had said, John, you know, I can't believe it now, but I actually thought he was the gardener. Of course, I was wrong. I can almost hear John saying, Mary, let's sit down with our Old Testament. He was the gardener, you know. God had given Adam in the beginning a little garden. You remember? That garden was set on the earth, which wasn't all gardens. The whole earth was not the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a small location on the face of the earth, and Adam's calling, among other things, as an agriculturalist, as a scientist, as an explorer, as someone who would have a large family which would enlarge itself, his task and This is what the gospel brings us back to. His task was to extend that garden to the ends of the earth, and then once he had done that, to jump up and down and say, Father, I've done it. Look at what you have helped me to do. I want to give it back to you. But instead of being the gardener, he became part of the garden. And now in the gospels, Jesus has entered into the public ministry, which he began in a wilderness surrounded by wild beasts. And he's overcome Satan in the wilderness, and he's began to garden people's lives. Here is someone who is lame, and he's given him his power back. He's someone who's blind. He's helped him see. He's someone who's grieving, and he's given them hope. And now the ultimate expression of what His grace and saving power would accomplish and will accomplish, that He has emerged from the tomb as the second Adam who has borne the burden of the sin of the first Adam and of ourselves. And in His resurrection, He has become the gardener again. And so, as you read right through the rest of the Bible, he says, now, before he leaves them, all authority, all dominion, it's now mine. Adam, the gardener, was given dominion and told to extend the dominion. Now, Jesus says, I've broken the powers of darkness. Now, the dominion is mine, but the dominion hasn't been brought to the ends of the earth. So now go into all the world with the gospel and garden the world with the gospel. That's what I'm sending you to do. So he really was the one who'd taken the body away and he really was the gardener. And there's a third thing here. I don't think Mary made this mistake, but I think sometimes we make this mistake. He said to her, now I want you to go to my brethren. And tell them, I am ascending to my God and their God, to my Father and their Father. And the third way in which I think we sometimes misunderstand Jesus here is when we say, now he was telling her that there is a vast difference between our relationship to God and his relationship to God. There is a vast difference between him calling God Father and us calling God Father. But actually the point that Jesus is making here because he isn't speaking here simply as though he were the eternal son of the eternal Father. He's speaking here as the Savior who has come into our humanity and now in that humanity has destroyed our death He's speaking not as God, but as God in our flesh. And the point he's wanting to make to Mary is now in the light of his resurrection. Just as he was able to think of God as his God and God as his Father and pray, Oh, my Father, now in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He's drawing us all in, as, as Hebrews 2 says, reflecting on the words of Isaiah, Father, this is what Jesus is saying in the resurrection, Father, here am I and the children you have given me. And I, I bring them into your presence. And when they open their mouths, and actually if you just think about it, think about If you know the Old Testament at all well, run your mind quickly from Genesis to the end of Malachi and count the number of times any believing individual in the whole of the Old Testament comes to God and says, Oh, Heavenly Father, do you know the number? Not one single time. It's astonishing. But now he's risen. Now the full light of the gospel has burst forth. Now the fullness of fellowship with God is possible. Now the way into his presence has been made clear through the veil that is through his torn flesh. Here is the most astonishing thing in all the world. It's all the more astonishing, perhaps, if you didn't have a father who was worthy of the name, that you're able to come to him, and you're able to say to him, oh, heavenly Father, that's all you need to say. Maybe all you're able to say. But it's the big difference, isn't it, between being a real Christian and not? Plenty of people, as David was reminding us this morning, who washed their faces and went to church and heard the message of Easter and determined that they would do better. And when they are in a crisis, even if they have said the Lord's Prayer in the early service, when they are in a crisis, the highest their cry will ever reach is, oh God. And never, oh Father, why? Because they've never really known Him as their Heavenly Father. And the reason why this is clearly what Jesus means is because He says to Mary, Now, go and tell my brothers. Do you think she got the address wrong? We're told she went to the disciples. Not she went to Jesus' family, to Jesus' brothers, but she went to the apostles. Go and tell my brothers the good news of this glorious gospel. You know, when you see and feel something of this, you think what a tragedy it is that anyone would miss the entire point. And in a sense, the entire point is is found in the question that these heavenly visitors bring, and the question that our Lord Jesus himself brings in verse 15. Woman, man, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And the great thing about Jesus saying this is this amazing reality. He knows that whatever it is we are looking for, whatever it is that causes us profound ache of soul, whatever it is that makes us feel overwhelmed when we come to Him as Savior, as Master, and as Lord. He is absolutely all sufficient for all of the needs of all of his people all of the time. And he has demonstrated it by his victory over our last and greatest enemy and his risen presence among his people. Death defeated. Satan overcome. Blind eyes open. Orphans become children of the living God. What a Savior. What a great thing to wake up on an Easter morning and know there's much more to it than the triumph of love over revenge. That would simply send you back to try to be a better person, the resurrection of Christ makes you a better person by making you a new person by bringing you to a glorious saviour and in that many of us in this room rejoiced for years and decades and if you've never rejoiced in all your life and wondered what these sermons mean what this day is really about. You've sensed perhaps, maybe much of your life, a profound disconnect between the message and what goes on in your own soul. Friend, the reason for that is perhaps you felt it's Easter day, I should be rejoicing, and I'm not. The answer is not to clench your fists and say, I'll try and rejoice better next year. The answer is to come to the risen Christ because without him there is no Easter and with him as we so often say every Sunday is Easter and indeed every day of our lives Hallelujah what a saviour Heavenly Father thank you for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the wonder of his love and for the marvellous tenderness and yes firmness, and kindness with which he spoke to Mary Magdalene, all on her own, frightened and full of fears and sorrow, and transformed her into a wonderful messenger of his resurrection power and his saving grace. Do the same with us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.